Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 311, uh, coming to you from my new studio. My new studio. <laughs> you can put studio in quotation marks. It's it's just my guest house. Uh, now that we have the baby, uh, my wife has kicked me out of the house for the recordings because, you know, it's loud. Well, not I'm not loud. Well, I guess I am kind of loud and uh, kind of disturbs the baby. So I've been kicked out to a different house. And uh, anyway, I'm just enjoying it right here. So uh, let's get going. We got an interesting one this week. We got an interesting one this week. I'm calling it the Harlem Renaissance, even though we're only going to talk about the Harlem Renaissance for a little bit. It's mainly about the 1920s. Uh, we're definitely kind of getting to the end of the class, if you can believe it. And um, stuff that uh, if, if our class was a little bit longer, I would expand upon. However, I think we definitely need to talk about the 1920s. We're going to talk about the Great Depression somewhat. Uh, we're going to give World War II a very short shift, I'm not going to lie, but we're going to talk about uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, a lot of different things, so, uh, yeah, let's get going. Get on Moodle, download the PowerPoint, you can see it right there. Uh, that first picture, it's uh, basically one of the earliest things that NAACP does. Not the earliest, we'll talk about the earliest, but anti-lynching legislation, which has actually never been passed. Uh, still to this day, lynching is not considered a federal offense. Now, is it considered a state offense? Sure. But uh, you have the problem of a lot of states not actually enforcing it, or when a lynching has occurred, uh, looking the other way because of the racism and white supremacy or what have you of the various states. There's even been talk of getting a lynching bill passed now. Um, they still haven't passed one. Uh, opponents say that it's unnecessary because we don't have that many lynchings. Uh, proponents say we do have lynchings or just police shootings and things like that. Uh, not going to get into that. But what I am going to get into is this idea that the NAACP, they are going for the top down. I mentioned that before last class. They're definitely top down. We're going to talk about a guy who's kind of bottom up. Well, we'll get into him in a little bit, uh, Marcus Garvey. But basically, you could see right here that African Americans are saying, hey, we cannot trust the state governments. Maybe we might have an ally in the federal government. Uh, ironic they say that because as the 1920 begins, it actually begins with a whole bunch of, if you go over one slide, uh, there's some labor unrest. There's some strikes. This is the first Red Scare. Now, if you're familiar with the Red Scare, you're probably familiar with the second Red Scare, which happens after World War II. Uh, the Army McCarthy hearings, all that good stuff. Maybe you read the play The Crucible in high school, which was okay, theoretically about colonial Massachusetts but actually about the, uh, the Red Scare, uh, well, the second Red Scare, the McCarthy hearings. This is the first Red Scare. It happens after World War I. It really happens after the Russian Revolution. Uh, Russian Revolution is something we do not talk about directly in this class because it theoretically has nothing to do with African Americans. However, you probably have heard about how during World War II, the communists take over Russia, they kill the Tsar. And after they kill the Tsar, they announce, we're going to be doing worldwide revolutions. We're going to be doing worldwide revolutions. We want to send out agents everywhere to kind of cause communist revolutions. Now, the fear of this is one of the reasons why World War II happens. Well, while people like Mussolini and Hitler come into power. But what you do want to know, in 1919, there are a whole ton of labor strikes. There are a whole ton of labor strikes. Uh, we talked about some of that. We talked about the race riots, how there are labor issues to pretty much all these race riots. But also there are other things going on. Um, you know, the fact that workers were not all able to strike or ask for better wages for the entirety of World War I. And now that the war is over, uh, workers want higher pay. That's one reason why you have more strikes. Another thing is the influx of former uh, soldiers coming back. And basically they want their jobs back. Uh, the race element of it, part of it too. But aside from the race thing, what a lot of Americans, and when I say Americans in this case, I mean white America, what a lot of white America fears with these strikes, what a lot of the elite, the 1% fear, is that these are these communist people trying to cause uh, a communist revolution. Still to this day, uh, there is the fear that communists have infiltrated the labor unions, anything labor is communist. Uh, one of these guys who gets involved with this is Palmer, A. Richard, uh, a. Mitchell Palmer. He's the attorney general. Basically, they do a series of raids called the Palmer Raids, uh, called the Palmer Raids, uh, basically to kind of crack down on supposed communists. What it really cracks down upon, though, is immigrants and people who aren't considered white or fully right. 
Uh, the fancy word for this is xenophobia. Uh, xenophobia, gosh, I don't even know the scientific definition off the top of my head. It's pretty much fear of the other. Fear of the other. And that's pretty much what is happening here. We've talked about the fear of the other before, otherism. Um, you know, uh, oh, I just looked it up. The, xenophobia literally means the fear or hatred of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange. Yeah, fear of the other. I'll take it. So basically, they are really cracking down on these other individuals. There aren't actually that many true, honest-to-God communist-like agents in the United States. I'm not saying there's none. I'm just saying there's not a lot. A fairly famous case you might have heard of is the Sacco and Vanzetti case. Uh, that is against two Italian immigrants who are indeed anarchists. Uh, they claim not to be communists, but they are anarchists. Uh, they are accused of killing somebody. They actually didn't kill anybody, or there's circumstantial evidence. Uh, that being said, though, they are executed. They are executed. It is called unjust. Now, how do they justify all this stuff? Well, if you go over one slide, you're going to hear about a brand new thing called scientific racism. Uh, racism comes in so many varieties and flavors. It's like Baskin-Robbins, 31 flavors. Uh, if you want to justify something with racism, there's a type of racism for you. If you want to look good while being racist, we can find it. Scientific racism at this time period was viewed as the most quote-unquote logical racism. Uh, another word for this is eugenics. Eugenics, which is this idea that there are a racial hierarchy. There's a racial hierarchy. They even kind of bring in ideas of Darwin. Uh, social Darwinism is what they call it. With this idea that basically some people in some cultures and some individuals are just better than others. Uh, they, are, they are more superior, they are more intelligent, they have stronger identities, uh, their, their uh, IQ is higher. In fact, IQ uh, comes about in this time period. Um, if you don't know the history of the IQ test, it's pretty damn racist. Um, basically, they're, they're judging a certain set of skills that is mainly refer... Uh, clear in some various, you know, white Nordic persons. Uh, there's a fear that basically uh, the American race, and remember they are equating American with white, is being quote-unquote diluted by inferior people. Um, you know, that's th the melting pot. Uh, you've probably heard that about the United States. We're a nation of immigrants. Uh, we all come in the melting pot. The problem for these eugenics people is they're afraid of what all's going in the melting pot. Uh, they think certain people are just not able to be assimilated, or if they are assimilated, they're going to make the culture inferior. Uh, not going to get into it too much in this class, but if you ever want to know what people say bad about immigrants, that has never changed in U.S. history. Like the criticisms of immigrants, uh, they took our jobs... Uh, they don't want to learn the language, their culture doesn't assimilate with our culture, they're different, they're inferior, they're criminals, they're filled with disease, all that sort of stuff. None of those arguments are new. Like, they're using the same thing verbatim uh, nowadays as they did back in the 1920s, and honestly, even before. Uh, now, the actual, you know, the actual layers of this racial hierarchy uh, kind of differ from person to person. Uh, they're pretty clear that, like, white people are on top. Um, Eastern and Southern European immigrants, even though they're, you know, they're, their skin is pale, uh, like the Irish and the Italian, they don't really consider them white. They definitely consider them lesser. Um, Asians are somewhat in there. Uh, there's some stuff going on in China, where, uh, not China, in California, against the Chinese. There we go. Uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, certain Chinese groups are lower than white people. Uh, pretty much everybody is in agreement, though, of these racist, eugenics, scientific racism people, that African-Americans are at the bottom. Uh, black people, 100% at the bottom. Uh, that's, that's pretty clear. However, as we talked about, uh, there's really no talk of expelling African-Americans because they're used a lot for cheap labor. Uh, that's another thing in U.S. history that never really changes. The idea that African-Americans, particularly African-American males can be used as cheap labor. So, you know, we don't want to dilute the melting pot, but we still want African-Americans in there. Um, they're inferior enough to be, you know, led and do cheap labor jobs, but they still want them in the country. 
Uh, another thing that really, really puts us together is something that I always end up talking about in all my classes. Um, not that I really like this movie. It's just really important. Go over one slide. A little film called Birth of a Nation. Uh, Birth of a Nation is one of these new varieties of racism. It is a firestorm for racism. It really brings about racism as we know it. And like extreme racism as we know it. And it's a movie. It's a movie. If you don't know, I'm a pop culture historian. Um, later on in this class, we're going to talk about like rap music, and you're going to be like, oh, dang, Telly does know a lot about pop culture. Uh, Birth of a Nation is the first real blockbuster American movie. Like, it's three hours long when most movies are like, I don't know, 15 minutes, or like Man Washes a Horse, like, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, they are fairly short. Uh, this is a three-hour epic movie. It costs more than your average movie. I believe it cost um, about $2 to see in the time period, uh, which is equivalent to, like, God, like 200 dollars nowadays. Like, this movie was an event to see. Like, I just want you to imagine, if you had to pay $200 to see a movie, you, you want, like, Iron Man sitting next to you, you want, like, the most spectacular, can't-give-us-at-home type experience, and that's what Birth of a Nation was. Uh, it was directed in 1915 uh, by a man named D.W. Griffith. Uh, when we come in class, I might make y'all watch a little bit of it. I might make y'all watch a little bit of it. Uh, technically, it's a very, very important movie, technically. Uh, in the sense that, like, the film taking, filmmaking techniques, and particularly editing techniques, that Griffith uses had never been done before. Some of them are still used in modern movies. Uh, an example is uh, the cross edit. That's a big one. Uh, maybe you've seen a movie wherever, like, you know, the, the villain is tying the, the damsel in distress to the railroad track, and they cut over to the hero who's, like, running in, you know, riding his horse, galloping towards the, uh, toward the railroad track, and they cut back to the, they cut back to the, you know, the damsel in distress, and it's, it's showing the passage of time and simultaneous things happening with this, like, kind of very quick edits. Uh, Griffith is the first one to do that. Likewise, Griffin is the first one to put a camera on a moving truck. Uh, he puts, uh, before this time, pretty much all films had static film cameras. Basically, you keep the camera in one place. He's the first one to have a moving camera. Uh, for the Civil War battle scenes, I, I should mention the plot of Birth of a Nation very quickly. Uh, Birth of a Nation, it's an it's a epic about the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, theoretically, it's about two families in South Carolina... Uh, one of them's like a senator or something. The other one's got, you know, one family's got a boy, one family's got a girl. So, of course, they're going to fall in love. But the Civil War happens and the family is split. Oh, no, what's going to happen? And they have Civil War battles, which Griffith uses um, actual photographs from the Civil War to really, you know, to stage his shots. So, basically, he wants it to look like this actual Civil War battlefields. Uh, where he could, they were quite old this time. But he did hire, like, actual Civil War veterans to participate. Likewise, in the plantation scenes, and by the way, there are plantation scenes because it's 1915, and of course they're being pretty damn racist, he actually hires some former slaves to serve as the slaves in this movie. A fact which is mind-blowing the more you think about it. Uh, that being said, though, the lead black roles, like the, the lead slave parts, are actually played by white people in blackface. Uh, they are actually played by white people in blackface. Now, that's the first half of the movie. The second half of the movie is where it gets really effing racist. And even for 1915, it was considered racist. Uh, but it was such a spectacle, people kind of went along with it. Uh, the second half of the movie is about Reconstruction. That's probably what I'm going to show you some clips of in class on, uh, whenever we go to class this week. It's clips from Reconstruction. Uh, theoretically, this goes with, along with something called the Dunning School. Now, the Dunning School, based at Columbia University, which is in New York City, basically, it's this version of Reconstruction that, contrary to the reality of Reconstruction, which we talked about, uh, it kind of brings up this idea that, basically, African Americans were emboldened, they were highly corrupt as politicians, they were, you know, raping the land, uh, going around, going crazy, just, you know, given too much freedom too soon, acting childlike, acting animalistic. But then they were saved by white power. Basically, the South and groups like the Ku Klux Klan came and redeemed this country. Um, this film is based off of a book called The Klansman. And it should not surprise you that the hero of the film, if you go over one slide, 
is the Klan. That's right. I'm going to show you all clips from the end where basically the Ku Klux Klan rides in to save the day. Uh, basically, it shows them at the very, very end uh, preventing African Americans from voting, and it's shown as a good deal. Basically shown as, uh, you know, the country being saved. Now, here's the thing. Uh, when this movie comes out, first of all, it gets, it gets a ringing endorsement from uh, the president, Woodrow Wilson, who is a PhD in political science and history. I'm ashamed to admit he had a PhD in political science. Um, he also taught history at Princeton. Uh, the famous quote he had was that this is like history writ with lightning. It's as though it's like this is the most accurate thing anybody has ever seen. And the reason they say that is because it's a spectacle. Remember, this is a spectacle. This is something that people pay a lot of money to see. This is viewed as lifelike. If you compare it to movies that have come before it, or even movies that are contemporary to it, much bigger budget, much bigger everything. In fact, adjusted for inflation, this is the second highest movie in U.S. history. Uh, number one is Gone with the Wind, a film that is also problematic, which we're not really going to have that much of a chance to talk about. Um, if this was my History of the South class, we would definitely talk about it. But for black history, I mean, I'm probably going to mention that uh, Hattie McDaniels once is the first black woman to win an Oscar uh, playing Mammy, but even that's problematic. We'll get into that later if we do, but we're probably not. Uh, what you do need to know about this, this movie is that two groups come about after it. Two groups really come into uh, fruition. Two groups really come into fruition. Uh, the first one is the Ku Klux Klan. That should not be surprising. About a month or so after the Ku Klux Klan... Um, after the movie comes out, uh, the Klan is reignited. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, just know that, remember, after like 1780, sorry, 1880 or so, there was no Klan. Uh, the Klan had effectively been killed by the Ku Klux Klan Act, but now the Klan has come back in the 19-teens and the 1920s gets really big. The other group, which weirdly enough uh, owes its existence in a way to Birth of a Nation, is the NAACP. Now, I bet you're like, what? The NAACP, how on earth are they owe Birth of a Nation their existence? Well, the first big protest the NAACP did that actually got traction and got people interested in the group wasn't their big court cases, which we're going to get into later. It's actually organizing protests against the movie. You see, people knew, and even white people knew, like people in the know who weren't racist, dunning school people, they knew that Birth of a Nation is telling wrong history. It's telling wrong history. I'm trying to think of a modern-day example. Like, I don't know, if uh, maybe you've seen a movie about Mardi Gras, and you're like, guys, this is not what New Orleans is actually like. This is what Mardi Gras is not actually like. This is silly. Uh, that's pretty... I mean, imagine that, except it's, like, racist and telling people that you're no good. Uh, you know, better example... What, anybody ever... Okay, this is way before your time, but that Adam Sandler movie, The Waterboy, which is supposed about South Louisiana... Imagine if people thought that is what South Louisiana is actually like, and you're like, uh, guys, no, that, that movie is pure silly. It's not accurate. Uh, imagine that, except, like, people are now glorifying the people who, like, killed your ancestors and, like, stripped your voting rights and, like, were the embodiment of white supremacy, and they're coming back bigger and more powerful than ever. That's what the NAACP is fighting against. NAACP, it gets a lot of publicity and gets a lot of organization because of its protest against Birth of a Nation. Now, as I said, of course, uh, after Birth of a Nation, the Ku Klux Klan comes back. It comes back. This is the second clan. Uh, the second clan is different than the first clan. The first clan is, for about 10 years during Reconstruction, uh, explicitly about being anti-African American. This new clan's a bit different. We're going to get into it. This is the clan that's theoretically still around today. Um, if you consider the Ku Klux Klan to still be around today, um, the actual organization is kind of a shell of its former self. However, you still have white supremacists all over the place. We'll talk about that later. Uh, it gets resurrected by basically a guy by the name of Walter J. Simmons. Uh, Walter J. Simmons, who is a uh, he's an interesting cat. He's an interesting cat in the idea that he starts a freaking clan. Uh, he basically idolized Ku Klux Klan. He was a little bit young for the original clan. He's not an original member. But basically he says, hey, Birth of a Nation reminds us that the Klan did something good in the South. We need to bring the Klan back. So basically he and some followers meet at Stone Mountain, Georgia. Okay, uh, this is one of those times where Tully is going to straight up show his uh, hand politically. 
Um, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. Y'all see me. You know, I don't talk too much about politics or religion. This is one that gets my goat. Now, if any of y'all have ever been to Stone Mountain, uh, Stone Mountain is right outside Atlanta. It's like the largest granite rock formation in the entire United States. Uh, if you go there nowadays, you're going to see engraved on the side, like chiseled into the rock, kind of like Mount Rushmore, but on a smaller scale, uh, the three great heroes of the Confederacy. You're going to see Stonewall Jackson. You're going to see uh, Robert E. Lee. You're going to see Jefferson Davis. They're on, uh, they're on horses. Uh, it seems like a Confederate pride thing. Now, I, you know, I, I went there once whenever I was little, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of weird they have a confederacy, but maybe they made it after the confederacy, whatever. Uh, whenever I first had heard about the Second Clan coming back, I was like, oh, that makes sense they did it on Stone Mountain, because that's where they carved the faces of the confederate guys into it. Guys, when they made Stone... Whenever the clan was reformed in 1915 in Stone Mountain, Georgia, there was no faces on the side of the mountain of Stone, Georgia. They made the faces on the side because that's where the Klan came. The faces weren't actually put on until the 1950s. Like, they, they started in the 20s, they ran out of money. Actually, the state of Georgia pitched in money in the 1960s to get this thing finished. Uh, that is a... That's not even a Confederate monument. That's like a Klan monument. And now they're talking about, should we get rid of it? Look, there are some Confederate monuments or landmarks that you can, might be like, oh, okay, it's kind of problematic, or maybe it's not meant to be racist. The reason they picked Stone Mountain was because the freaking Klan was reformed there. So, Tully's getting off the soapbox. Uh, the Klan also gets a lot of ideas from Birth of a Nation. Uh, most specifically, the Burning Cross. Uh, the original Ku Klux Klan, after Reconstruction, never used the Burning Cross. Also, they didn't have the fancy white sheets like they had in the movie. Um, the new Klan was like, hey, that Burning Cross, that's a pretty good idea. We should use it. Uh, they also literally hire a PR firm. I'm not making this up. The Ku Klux Klan hires a PR firm in the teens and 20s to make themselves more popular. And boy howdy, if you go on one more slide, you will see themselves as getting very popular. Uh, this new clan is all about white supremacy. Uh, the old clan was anti-black. The old clan really didn't have that much to say about immigrants or Jews or Catholics or... Uh, protecting womanhood, that's another thing that they call themselves, the defenders of traditional womanhood. Uh, they're very anti-feminist, or what passes feminism in the 19-teens and 20s. Uh, they are more pro-white, pro-America. They're tapping into this very nativist sentiment, which you've found in some things before, like the Know Nothing Party. Uh, they are not just popular in the South. That is another thing I need you to know. This second clan is not just popular in the South. It is popular everywhere. It is popular everywhere. Uh, the clan, the state which had like the most clan members per capita is Indiana. In fact, the governor, uh, sorry, the lieutenant governor of Indiana was like the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan there in the 1920s. Uh, the state with the second most clan members in this time period per capita was New Jersey. You know, the great southern state of New Jersey. Uh, this clan has adapted. They changed the language. Uh, they try to say that they're you know, more about being pro-America. Uh, they try to be a quote-unquote respectable organization, like a civic organization. They have women auxiliaries. They have parades. In fact, they do a parade in Washington, D.C., uh, where the Klan people don't wear masks. Uh, they, they go unhooded. Uh, that is one thing about the Klan in the 20s, is that they did not feel the need to hide their faces because they felt that they were being quote-unquote good Americans. Uh, there's even a president... A guy who's later president, who's member of the Ku Klux Klan for about a week, uh, for about a week, uh, Harry Truman, for about a week, is a member of the Klan in Missouri. Um, the reason why this is kind of a technicality is because he attends one meeting, somebody else pays his membership dues, and he leaves shortly thereafter because he finds out that they're against Jews. And his political benefactor is actually a Jewish family in uh, Kansas City. So once he heard about the whole anti-Jewish thing, he's like, oh, yeah, I can't really be a member of this organization. He pulls out. Uh, that being said, though, there are a lot of members, sorry, there's a lot of presidents who do have Klan sympathies. Woodrow Wilson does. Warren G. Harding does. Uh, Calvin Coolidge probably did. He's, he's kind of an iffy guy. Uh, also, the original Ku Klux Klan is only Democrats. This Klan is cool with both Republicans, Democrats, Independents, whatever. Um... It gets really high 
By 1925, you have about 5 million members across the country. Uh, they do start declining shortly thereafter. Uh, thankfully, uh, the Klan has a very short time period in the sun in the 1920s. doesn't fully go away. Uh, the original Klan, they got rid of it by the uh, Ku Klux Klan Act. This one fell apart due to infighting. Uh, mainly older members of the Klan, or like, you know, the, uh, they, they, they still had some original members of the Klan. I mean, original members of the Klan were probably in there, oh gosh, whoo, 60s or 70s by this point, I suppose. Uh, some of the, you know, are the children of the original members. Uh, they're like, all right, cool, so we did this. Let's have some lynchings. Let's have some violence. Uh, the newer members were not keen on lynchings. They're like, hey, we hate black people, but we don't want to, like, kill people because that's a little too extreme. Also, uh, the whole defender of Southern womanhood. I think I mentioned uh, the Grand Wizard of the Klan in Indiana, uh, who was a lieutenant governor. He was actually caught with a 14-year-old girl. That doesn't look good. That doesn't show you being a good moral person. Uh, they do have a moment in the sun. It kind of falls down. But still, they're very much active in the 1920s. Uh, as I mentioned, the NAACP is actually growing in the 1920s. Uh, somebody like James Weldon Johnson, he's, he's, a, he's a guy who kind of takes over for, uh, for Dubois. Who Dubois is he's a founder of the NAACP. He's a main spokesperson. Uh, he is later viewed as too radical for the NAACP. He later on becomes pretty much straight-up socialist. But he's still a very important person in the, uh, in the NAACP in the 1920s. Uh, however, the guy who's really spearheading it, if you go one more slide, there he is, James Wadden Johnson. Uh, he is, he's a light-skinned person. He's a light-skinned person, probably of mixed race, definitely of mixed race. Uh, that being said, though, he is somebody who is viewed as a good spokesperson for both black and white people, really able to bridge those gaps. He's not as abrasive as Du Bois is. Uh, du Bois, Du Bois, I always mess it up, it's Du Bois. Uh, du Bois is a bit abrasive in his intelligence, like, I'm smarter than you, STFU. Uh, Johnson's a bit better about being tactful. Now, the NAACP, as I mentioned, they are doing things like using the judicial system. Using the judicial system to protect civil rights. That's the main thing they want to do. They think, look, if we can go through the judges, if we can go through the law, if we can get them actually enforcing the law... Maybe we have a chance. Uh, changing the hearts and mind of individual white people, changing the hearts of mind of the American society, that doesn't seem to be working out very well. But you know what? If we go through the courts, if we make it the law, and if that's the law, and we make them enforce the law, we might have a chance. That is the NAACP's main tactic. The main tactic is doing these court cases. Uh, they try to get rid of, uh, basically, voting rights is a big one, too. They Not get rid of voting rights, but get rid of the barriers to voting rights. Uh, things like the Democratic primaries in the South banned black people from voting. Uh, remember, theoretically, African Americans had the right to vote in the South. Put a big old grain of salt with that one, theoretically, because Jim Crow found a way to get rid of voting rights. So the NAACP is like, hey, African Americans do deserve voting rights. It's in the Constitution, you know, 15th Amendment. We should get it passed. They want to challenge it legally. Uh, later on, when we get into the 1960s, it's more uh, grassroots, on the ground, getting voter registration done. The NAACP is like, nah, we, sh we want to go, like, from the top. Go from the top, get people to agree to it that way. They also do other uh, court cases that get you going on with this. Uh, for instance, the uh, the Sweet case, Osian Sweet. Uh, this is in the 1920s. It's in Detroit. It's in Detroit. And so basically, Osian Sweet, he's a black physician. He's a black doctor. He wants to move into a all-white neighborhood. He has the money. Remember, it's a, it's a thing of class. It's a thing of class. He wants to move into an all-white, nice neighborhood. Um, basically, there are mobs that say otherwise. For several nights, there is a mob that comes to his house every night saying, Hey, leave leave black person, I'm sure they said something not as nice as black person, uh, leave or we're going to do something to you, they threat, They were threatening him, that sort of thing, uh, you know, we're, we're, sweet as living, we're sweet as living with his family. Uh, one night, you know, the crowd gets a little too rowdy, the mob gets too rowdy, and basically Sweet fires a gun into it. He fires a gun into the crowd, he thinks they're trying to kill him, and in doing so, he kills one of the white people. He kills a white person, he kills a white person, he is arrested for murder. 
He is arrested of murder. And basically the NAACP is like, look, we need to get our best legal guy on this. And they actually hire somebody. They hire a man by the name of Clarence Darrow. Uh, Clarence Darrow, you might have heard of later on in the Scopes Monkey Trial. Scopes, uh, not Scopes, Darrow is known as the best defense lawyer in all of America. Um, I cannot think of the modern-day equivalent, uh, you know, the person who will defend anybody. Uh, back when I was a kid, it was Johnny Cochran. You know, like, oh, if you got the cash to pay for Cochran, he'll defend anybody. He'll take the cases other lawyers might not take. Make sure everybody gets their defense. Uh, Clarence Darrow is that guy in the 20s. And actually, this is one of the times where Clarence Darrow wins the case. He basically argues, and he persuades the jury, that this is, a, this is self-defense. You know, this is clear and present danger. There was, a, there was an angry mob who was trying to kill him. And basically, it was an armed mob too. It was an armed mob. And basically, Sweet was justified in firing a gun into an angry mob trying to kill him. This was not murder. This was self-defense. A jury agreed. A jury agreed, and actually Sweet was acquitted. This is seen as NAACP as, hey, this is a way this could work. We're getting some victories. You know, if all we have to convince is 12 white people. If we can convince 12 white people of the facts, we can get the law on our side, and an innocent man goes free. Now, granted, this was in Detroit. Um, something like this probably wouldn't have happened in the South for multiple reasons. First of all, somebody from the South probably wouldn't be trying to integrate a neighborhood like this. Uh, second of all, they would have probably just done a lynching. They wouldn't have actually gone through with a trial. But still, that's the NAACP. They're kind of moving. They're shaking. They're growing in this time period. Now we get to the fun guy. We get to Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association. Okay. I'm going to drop in a new one for you. New thing, a new idea that had never really existed in this time period. Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism. That's a word that's really important. It's going to come a little bit later, but pan-Africanism really comes about in this time period. Marcus Garvey is the one who really spearheads it in the United States in the 1920s. It's actually an older thing. It's actually an older thing. Uh, you have the, fir the per first pan-African congress um, in a place like London in 1900. Uh, basically, what, what pan-Africanism is, is this idea that all black people, regardless of where they live, there is no African-American, there is no anything like that, all black people, you know, living in Africa, living in exile, there's a fancy word called diaspora, or diaspora, however you want to say it, uh, basically this idea that people living in exile, basically pan-Africanism says that, but it actually unifies with the black folks already in Africa. It says basically... African people need to come together, all right? Pan-Africanism says all black folks, not just African-American, all black people need to come together. You know, you know, recognize their shared heritage coming from Africa. Talk about how they are tied to Africa. Uh, try to eliminate colonial rule in Africa. That's a big one because pretty much all of Africa was dominated by a European power in this time period. Uh, Britain, France, Germany, Portugal, Belgium, Spain, Italy, all of whom were, you know, had colonies in Africa. Uh, they were imperializing them, pretty much taking over, uh, taking all the resources. Uh, the only places in Africa that were never colonized were Ethiopia was the one that really wasn't colonized, and Liberia, which I'm like, no, that was kind of colonized by the United States, even though it was a colony designed for former slaves to go to. Uh, it still has very American culture. Pan-Africanism, uh, like I said, they first meet in the first Pan-African Congress in London. Uh, they really want to get, uh, in 1900, they really want to get into this idea that we're going to make Africa for Africans, you know, kick out all the white people, unify black folks from across the country, doesn't matter where you're from, across the globe, not across the country, doesn't matter where you are, there's something distinct in blackness that unites us together by the color of our skin. Uh, doesn't matter what language you speak, what religion you speak, we are black, we should be unified. This idea of racial unity, of racial awareness, I keep using the term pan-African, but this Afrocentric pan-African ideology had never existed before. Had never existed before. 
uh, before this time, the idea of like black folks. I mean, yes, that you do have the um, you know white over black racism, but that's just within the United States. Like somebody from Africa who came over is, is viewed as a, is a different person in the United States. They're not viewed as. I mean, they're viewed as black by their complexion, but they're not viewed as African-American, as this makes any sense. That being said, Pan-Africanism says it doesn't matter where you're from. You can be French, you can be from, you know, Ethiopia, you can be from Brazil, the Caribbean. doesn't matter. You're black. You have, you have African ancestors. We should unify about this. And Marcus Garvey, if you go over one slide, is the dude who really embodies this for the United States. The United Negro Improvement Association is all about this black nationalism. This idea that as black people, we need to be separate. If you remember the other day, I, I drew some pyramids on the, on the board about how, uh, you know, Washington and Du Bois thought that African-Americans and white people should be joined in America. Um, Marcus Garvey wants two separate pyramids. He says, black folks, we got nothing to do in America. There is nothing for us in America. There's nothing for us with white society, nothing for us in the United States. We need to get out of here. Very big on things like racial pride. Uh, Christianity, which is interesting. Um, unlike later things like the Nation of Islam, he does not view Christianity as the um, oppressor's religion. He basically argues that, you know, Jesus was, uh, you know, they're, they're, he's, not even a, he's not a black Israelite. Uh, that's something we're going to talk about later when we talk about rap music. But it's this idea that basically, um, you know, Christianity is okay. God really is beyond a race. We should join together in Christian brotherhood because preachers are viewed as respectable and educated, and we should go and do your own our own thing. The other thing that Garvey really pushed is economic cooperation, apparently with separation. Uh, he thinks African Americans have no business buying stuff from white people, period. Uh, the example he likes to use is a baby doll. He says there is no reason for a black girl to have a white baby doll. He says, you know, you know white girl, sorry, black girls should not have a white baby doll, uh, that does not look like them. That's not good for them to have things like that. Uh, they should have a good black baby doll. We should have a good black baby doll made at a factory owned by black people. Maybe her dad could work there. Uh, they make money selling to black customers, keeping that dollar within the black community. This is still very much a very, very, very... Um, not contentious issue, because most people agree upon it, but hot-button issue in various parts of the African-American community. Uh, this idea of keeping black dollars within the black neighborhood, within the black community. Um, there's a Netflix show with a rapper by the name of Killer Mike where he does this, where he goes to Atlanta, I believe, and just sees how much can I keep this dollar within the black community. Now, although Garvey... Oh, yeah, I should mention about Garvey. He is not African-American. I should also mention that. should have actually led with that. Uh, he is Jamaican. He is Jamaican by birth. However, he kind of migrates to the United States later on. He's never a citizen. Uh, he just stays here for a while. Starts the UNIA in New York City. By the 20s, they are all over the country, these kind of UNIA halls, uh, United Negro Improvement Association. Basically, where they really start pushing things like black pride, uh, economic cooperation, things like this. Uh, one God, one aim, one destiny. African Americans need to organize for their own investment. Uh, you know, don't wait for Whitey to give you this. Take it. Uh, you know, he, he, if you go over one slide, up you might erase. Uh, called the Black Moses by some, not too many. Uh, actually, go over two slides. I want you to see his picture first. Uh, you can see a picture of him wearing this very uh, uniform, very... Uh, he's militaristic in the sense of pride. Not militaristic in the sense of guns and uh, arming people. That's later on when we talk about uh, things like the Black Panther Party where like, hey, African Americans need to be armed. Uh, Garvey is more about the uniform is a sense of pride. Uh, basically, he and his followers would wear these uniforms, kind of, you know, this idea that, you know, I am a, a, you know, I'm a general, I'm a person of substance. We should have black pride in this. Uh, he does establish some, uh, some uh, businesses that actually hire black people. Uh, also gets very big in the Back to Africa movement. Uh, for the longest time in the 1920s, he embodies the Back to Africa movement. Basically saying, black folks, nothing for you here in the United States. We should leave, get out of here, go to Liberia, go somewhere else in West Africa. We should do it. He even forms his own shipping line, the Black Star Line, uh, which was a takeoff of the White Star Line, which is the uh, ship line that had the Titanic. Uh, basically, it was going to be a shipping line that was going to make money, 
and then the ships were going to take black folks away from America to Africa. Now, here's the problem with Garvey. Number one, most African-American leaders don't like him. Uh, Dubois hates him. Um, yeah, uh, Garvey actually really likes Washington. He really wants to be like Washington. However, Washington dies about a week before uh, Garvey's scheduled to meet with him. So basically, Garvey and uh, Dubois, or Dubois, have beef so legendary, it's even bigger than the beef that Dubois had with Washington, and that was substantial. Because, yo, uh, Dubois hates Garvey. Um, there's a lot of African-American leaders, NAACP people, who hate Garvey. Basically, they're saying that Garvey is destroying African-American um, ideology. Basically, the separatism thing is going to make white people less likely to be conciliatory towards African-Americans. What about African-Americans who want to stay in America? That thing. Um, so that's a problem with him. Um, there, there's, a art, there's a headline I use in my regular classes, my 256 class, where basically uh, Dubois is basically criticizing uh, Garvey and says, basically Dubois says, uh, Garvey talks too much. That's what he says. The headline is, Garvey talks too much. In response, Garvey says that the NAACP stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People, implying that Du Bois is not really black. Um, remember, Du Bois is half white, half black, and most of the leadership of the NAACP is very light-skinned individuals. Uh, Garvey is 100% black, he's a very dark-complected individual, and basically Garvey's like, you're a piece of trash. Um, you're not really black. In fact, another one of my favorite quotes that Garvey says about uh, people in the NAACP, uh, this one actually made my book because I love this quote so much. He claims, quote, they're nothing but a bunch of quadroons married to octoroons. Uh, mar uh, nothing but a bunch of quadroons married to octoroons. Basically saying they ain't black, they white. Uh, go even further, go even further. Uh, some members of the NAACP and other black leaders actually wrote a letter to the Attorney General of the United States saying Garvey is the most dangerous man in America and deport him. Remember, he's not a citizen, he's not an immigrant, he's just a migrant, he's just living here. They're like, deport him. He is awful. He is awful. Uh, Garvey also doesn't trust white people. Some other, people do, some other African Americans do trust white people. But this is where it's going to get weird. Because Marcus Garvey, despite the fact that he doesn't like white people very much, he is willing to take meetings and does a lot of meetings with one organization. And your slide doesn't want to mention it. I don't think your book mentions it. But that organization is the Ku Klux Klan. That's right. Garvey is like, hey, guys. And he tells you know, other African-Americans, look, I know the Klan gets a bad rap for lynching and junk, but I talked to them, and you know what? They want us to leave the United States, too. They're going to help us get out of the country. They're going to help us go back to Africa. To which all the African-Americans are like, oh, my God, you met with the Klan. And Garvey's like, but they want the same stuff we want. To which all the black folks go, African-Americans go, for the love of God, Garvey, you met with the Klan. Now, that's actually not why Garvey loses his support. Why he does lose his support is that the federal government actually gets tired of him. Um, maybe it's because of things like Du Bois, maybe it's because of letters, maybe it's because this rhetoric that he has is getting more militaristic and the federal government's afraid of you know, some over-uprisings. We don't know, but the federal government decides, you know what, We're, he, he's tiresome, and they decide to convict him on the one of the two things they can always get you on. Um, if the federal government ever wants you to go to prison, there are two things they can always get you on. Number one is tax evasion. That's how they got Al Capone. Um, they can always get you on tax evasion. Number two is mail fraud. Now, why does he have mail fraud? This is actually kind of interesting. Uh, remember the Black Star Line? Which are going to be the ships he was going to build to, uh, you know, get these ships built to, uh, you know, have a shipping line and base, uh, eventually get people back to Africa. Well, here's a problem with ships. They're really expensive. So instead of building a ship, he says, I'm going to buy old ships and give them a, new, a nice coat of paint, and then we're going to, you know, say that they're new. But he didn't tell his, like, people he's raising money from that. And so basically he's saying, hey, we're going to be doing these ships uh, with, that are new, and he's charging them new prices, but they aren't. They're actually old. 
so basically, when you say one thing costs one price and you raise money for it, but actually costs another, uh, that, my friends, is what we call fraud. That is a good old-fashioned fraud. Um, basically, when he's arrested, the, fe- the U.S. federal government offers him two choices. You can go to prison, or you can leave and never come back. And Garvey chooses to leave and never come back. He spends the rest of his life in London, uh, dies in the 40s, I believe. He doesn't die- live that much longer after this. Uh, labor, don't worry too much about this first thing with labor. The Great Migration happens, which changes the uh, makeup a lot of, uh, you know, work of the industrial workforce. Uh, labor unions have more pressure because, you know, now you have black workers coming in. Most unions don't allow black workers. That's a problem. Uh, maybe because black workers are used as strike breakers. Uh, the NAACP and the groups like the Urban League are trying to appeal to unions to hire black workers. Still, most unions were pretty damn racist about in this time period. Uh, later on, when you get into like the 70s and 80s, unions become a bit more egalitarian in terms of race. But still, unions are often an old boys club, and they did not want African Americans in. Uh, one of those times where race is exasperated by labor and economics. Moving on, but one labor union that African Americans do join is the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, that's because pretty much all sleeping car porters are black. Uh, what is a sleeping car porter? It's kind of like an usher or like a, a, a butler or something on a sleeping car, uh, on a train sleeping car. In this time period, that's a job that the job is pretty much um, 99.9 with a repeating decimal percent black. Pretty much all black men are sleeping car porters. And A. Philip Randolph, A. Philip Randolph is the leader of this. He's A. Philip Randolph is the leader of this group. Um, he, he is the leader of the, of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. He is a socialist, kind of a lowercase s socialist, uh, really committed to economic change. He is a protest leader for forever. He is a protest leader for forever. Um, the reason I'm introducing you to him now is because he's going to get much more involved in the Double V campaign and also even the March on Washington, like, you know, the Martin Luther King one. Uh, he's involved for forever in this. He does get arrested by the Department of Justice in 1919 as part of the Palmer Raid stuff. But still, A. Philip Randolph is the guy who really spearheads the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, turns it into the largest black labor union. Also times the only black labor union. Because it's a job that is 100% black, pretty much. And basically, white people can't get around, you know, doing scabs for this. Uh, this is the first black labor union. A. Philip Randolph is going to become super important later on when we talk about what he does with labor, particularly in World War II. If you go over one slide, you will see a picture. Uh, really, really, really big time. Um, he is a militant dude. Uh, March on Washington. Well, the, the attempted one in 41 and the real one in 63. All of his baby. We'll talk about him much, much, much more later. Uh, does he get resistance? Yeah, he does. Black clergy, black, uh, clergy don't like him. Black clergy don't like people being in unions. They think it's useless. Uh, likewise, a lot of black newspapers, weirdly enough, including the Chicago Defender. Uh, Chicago Defender, I did a project on that this semester with Dr. Wilson about what they do in World War II. Uh, they don't like it. Basically, uh, they interfere that if they, they believe that if black people get too involved with unions... Uh, white people are going to become even less likely to hire them because they're afraid it's going to be a union thing. They think it's going to be a bad thing. All right, let's get into the Harlem Renaissance. Let's get into Harlem Renaissance. Uh, Basically, it's an explosion of creative arts in the 1920s. Creative arts in the 1920s, a lot of black and white artists, but come on, it's African-American history. We're talking about the black artist. We are definitely talking about the black artist. Um, Mainly centered around Harlem and New York, uh, on the island of Manhattan, the, the borough of Manhattan. Um, basically, all sorts of things coming up with it, where basically people are grappling. And for the first time, you have, like, African-American intellectuals, which is not a new thing, but, like, literature people, which is also not a new thing, really tackling what it means to be black in America. Really tackling what it means to be black and really getting exposure. That's the big one. That's the big one. They're finding that there's a market for, like, literate, you know, middle and upper class African Americans who, and also white Americans too, I'll give them some credit, who are interested in basically high thought. Uh, for instance, Alan, uh, Alan Locke is one guy who gets really involved with this, 
writes a book called The New Negro. Uh, it's a very important collection of essays really talking about what does it mean to be black? How does one have this collectious consciousness? Um, you know, before Harlem Renaissance, there are some. There are some, you know, developments for the 1920s. People in the talented 10th. Uh, the problem is basically getting acceptance. Getting acceptance and also getting, you know, real exposure. Real exposure. Now, you do have a lot of writers and artists. I, I should mention, even though HBCUs exist, they're not really big in this time period. Uh, in 1920, you only have about 2,000 African Americans pursuing higher education. So it's still very much a very elite thing. That's something that doesn't expand until later on. Still, you do have a lot of writers like Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. Uh, they do get involved in the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, they are this, um, she, you know, she, she writes quite a bit of stuff. Langston Hughes, I'm sure you're familiar with his poetry. Uh, black writers, a lot of them are educated at pretty good schools, uh, like your Ivy League schools. Uh, still, people like Hughes, people like Hearst, they're really talking about what does it mean to be black. Uh, think about with Langston Hughes, you know, raisin in the, uh, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? This idea that African Americans, they are American. Like, they're not just black. You know, that, that's something that they're kind of doing a pushback of, is this kind of dual consciousness. Like, how is it that one person can be both black and American at the same time, and those two consciousnesses exists within them at all times, this dual identity that, uh, you know, other people's might be. You know, a point like we, we wear the mask, basically that, you know, white America sees African-Americans as one way, uh, but by themselves they're another way. There's elements of race and class and religion that all gets into it. Uh, Harlem, of course, really gets into this. Uh, a lot of ritter, literary magazines like The Crisis, which is the NAACP's uh, thing, uh, even something like the Chicago Defender. Uh, the Chicago Defender, which is a newspaper, publishes some of this. The Crisis is the NAACP's uh, literary magazine. I had to read, like, every issue of it in the 1920s for my book. Um, so I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> uh, it. It's basically writing about black thought, black beauty. What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be a black American? really expounding upon this, and the thing is, there's distribution. Before this time, there are tons of other black writers. They didn't get published too much. They didn't have the exposure, maybe outside of their immediate area. But a newspaper like the Chicago Defender gets national distribution. Uh, the NAACPs, the crisis, gets international distribution. And so, people all over the world are reading about what does it mean to be black. Now, there are disagreements about what should black literature be like. What should black literature be like? What should black expression be like? What should it all be like? Well, a key example of this is the idea of jazz. I know that's not literature, but it's culture. You see, a lot of people don't want, a lot of African Americans say, we should not show our behinds in this music, in this expression. We should not be quote-unquote real. Uh, jazz music was found to be low class. A lot of African Americans in the 1920s, a lot of the guys I write about in my book, cannot stand jazz music. They think it's bad for the race. They think it's the lowest common denominator. They think it's not showing African Americans uh, best elements. It's viewed as too sexual. Uh, viewed as not intellectual because a lot of jazz is improvising. Then you have other people uh, who are so important supportive jazz. Uh, other people are in support of like African-American expression, which is more uh, primal. It's viewed as more authentic. A guy like Langston Hughes writes sometimes in dialect. Uh, this idea that, hey, why are we writing in African-American dialect? It shows African-American, you know, to be in such a dialect would be to show us as ignorant. But people like Langston Hughes are like, no, no, we should be real about it. Same thing with a lot of early jazz musicians. We should, you know, we should play the music that, that is real. And we could maybe talk about this in class. In fact, I do want to talk about this in class. In fact, whoever's doing the questions this week, please talk about this in class. This idea about, you know, representation. What's good, what's bad? You know, it's sometimes, is it getting too real? Is it showing the wrong thing? Uh, an example, this is going to be a very, very mild example. But I know within parts of the African-American community, uh, there are folks who do not like Tyler Perry. 
Uh, they think Tyler Perry, his movies are derivative. They show African-Americans as just like, you know, religious folk and, uh, you know, kind of whatever. It's not really worth it. Same criticism of rap music. I think that's a better example. Rap music. You know, I'm going with rap music better than Tyler Perry, mainly because I know rap music a lot better. Uh, there's a lot of rap music that's viewed as, like, filthy or foul, mm -hmm. but then others are like, no, this is real life. You know, there's, there, you know, life is stuff on the street. Um, you know, there are women of loose virtue out there. Sometimes it's violent. You know, is it really self-expression? Are we putting a bad foot if we are just being real, if we are being authentic to ourselves? Much bigger conversation for another time that we're going to talk about. Now, what kind of ends the Harlem Renaissance? We'll get into this next week. The Great Depression. Great Depression is really bad for black folks. Uh, also, I should mention Prohibition and things like the Jazz Age. Uh, the Jazz Age is a, you know, jazz is a genre. Uh, gets popular with white people this time period. Uh, I'll be real. Same with rock and roll getting popular in the 50s and 60s. It's the first time white people have heard about it. Um, black folks have had jazz for a while. It's just white folks start listening to it. Uh, the 18th Amendment, Volsonet, basically creates prohibition. So basically alcohol is illegal. Everybody does it. Uh, what's kind of interesting, though, with jazz is, like, the most exclusive place to play. You know, the best place, probably the place that if you're familiar with it, uh, is, you know, if you're familiar with this time period, if you think, like, 1920s black culture, you think the Cotton Club. Everybody thinks of the Cotton Club. That is Harlem's most exclusive nightclub. That is the fanciest nightclub. If you're a black performer... And you get to play the Cotton Club, my God, that's as good as it gets. You get good patronage. It also hires black waiters and has black people behind the bar. Uh, Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington, the Duke Ellington is like the, the house band there. That's amazing. Freaking Duke Ellington. Um, problem is, even with something like that, there is element of race in there. For instance, even though black folks could perform at the Cotton Club, black folks could not attend the Cotton Club. It was a white-only club. I'll repeat that. The most exclusive club in Harlem. The place that all the Harlem musicians, if you're a jazz musician, you've made it when you've played the Cotton Club. It's a white-only club. It is a segregated club. Black people cannot go to the Cotton Club as, as, as uh, anything but musicians. Uh, also, uh, the term Cotton Club, it has a plantation motif. That's not an exaggeration. It's got a plantation motif. Hence the term cotton. So, once again, is that problematic? Yes, I think it is. I mean, sure, you're getting paid, so that's pretty awesome. In fact, you're getting paid way better at the Cotton Club than anywhere else. But still, you know, you're, you're playing for white people in a plantation place. And I should also mention, uh, there is some colorism that gets involved in it. Particularly in terms of the uh, bartenders and the, uh, uh, the Cotton Club girls. Uh, they would not hire dark-skinned women to be a dancer or a bartender or a cigarette girl at the Cotton Club. Doesn't matter how pretty you are, whatever, this gets into colorism with beauty. And I should mention, this is like a black-owned, it's not a black-owned club, it's a white-owned club, but like there's black management. They are strict about, we only hire light-skinned women. We only want black women of light complexion. They would not hire white women. Because, no, it's a black-only club in the membership, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the uh, staff. Only black people on staff. But if you're a woman who works in the Cotton Club, you had to be extremely light-complected. They would not hire a dark-skinned black woman to work at the Cotton Club. Is that problematic? Talk about it. Please do. Uh, you do have some musicians. For instance, Bessie Split, Smith, the Empress of Blues. Uh, she's the first one who really, actually, Mamie Smith is the first one who gets... Um, who gets really big in this. Still, there's other kids that get involved. Uh, my book is about this, so of course I'm going to talk a lot about this. Sorry. A uh, lot of shows that start bringing black entertainers. What I want to talk about is my good friend, my good friend. I never met her. She died long before I was born. My good subject, Ethel Waters. Uh, Ethel Waters, she is one of the first, like, really big stars. In fact, she starts, pretty much saves the record company, Black Swan Records. That is a main subject of my book. Uh, she is known for, like, singing this, like, kind of down-home, uh, dirty blues. She gets very popular. Uh, later on, she joins the Billy Graham Crusade, which the only reason I'm mentioning that is because my parents performed with her once as part of the Billy Graham Crusade. Uh, back when Billy Graham came to LSU in the 1970s, uh, my parents were in his choir. 
she toured with him for forever. So if you YouTube Billy Graham, LSU, Ethel Waters, you're going to see Ethel Waters singing with my mom and dad. Random, but whatever. So there you go. If you ever want to watch Tully's parents in the background, well, Ethel Waters sings my, uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow, which became her uh, best-known tune. There you go. Uh, also pretty interesting that Ethel Waters was like a pretty well-known lesbian later on in life, but it's one of those open secret things. But she's also devoutly religious. That's why she joined the Billy Graham crusade. But it's just one of those things that they didn't remark about at the time, but it was pretty evident later on. Uh, there is drama that comes about in this time period. Paul Robeson's probably the one you do want to know about. Paul Robeson makes a lot of different things, uh, different, different, uh, different, different plays with black people. I don't know why they're... Oh, the, the reason they're mentioning Gershwin is because, yeah, he makes Corgi and Bess. Corgi and Bess, which is a opera that stars black people in a black dialect. Um, Gershwin's white, but he is basically making black opera. Basically showing, hey, African Americans do have a place in culture. Uh, sports. Yeah, we got sports. We got sports. Uh, a lot of things going on in the sports world in this time period. This is the first time you have sports celebrities. Uh, really goes in the 1920s. Your first real big sports celebrity is Babe Ruth in the 1920s. He's white-ish. There's always questions about his racial makeup because he's an orphan. There's talk about maybe his mama was black. We don't know. Uh, that said, basically, black people were banned in Major League Baseball starting in 1887. Um... Uh, Charlie Grant is signed by the Baltimore Orioles, but he's not allowed to play in the major leagues. Uh, Rube Foster is another one. He's a black pitcher. Actually, involved, uh, later gets involved with uh, the the National Negro League, the Negro League Baseball, who you're probably familiar with. Uh, players like Statchel Page and all this. Uh, the Negro Leagues are a pretty big baseball uh, organization. Uh, they pretty much exist concurrently with Major League Baseball until Jackie Robertson desegregates the leagues. But still, Negro League Baseball, interesting to know about. Boxing is also super big in this time period. Uh, the Brown Bomber, Joe, um, Joe Johnson, uh, basically gets involved, uh, becomes the heavy, first black heavyweight champion of the world by beating a white guy, beating a German guy with tons of racial undertones to it. Still, you're having black celebrity. This idea that you know a black man is literally beating a white man, punching him, proving that he's stronger. Definitely a vicarious thrill. Very popular for a lot of African Americans. Uh, college sports. Uh, college sports. You do have uh, black people playing in college sports, particularly in schools in the north. Uh, schools like Iowa State has black players on their football team. Uh, Notre Dame has a black player for a while. Uh, generally, there's only one. Uh, they don't have tons of black athletes. Uh, not tons of black athletes. Um, also, sometimes black colleges would refuse to play teams that had a black athlete. This is mostly notorious in the South. Uh, Big Ten basketball coaches actually agreed not to accept black uh, players. That's my fun March Madness fact. Uh, I'm recording this as March Madness is going on. There's a game going on in the, well, not in the background. I don't have a TV in, in my studio. But I know there's a game going on because my wife is watching it with my son. who's like a week old and I don't think he understands basketball. But still, uh, you know, it's interesting that African-Americans who... There's a lot of black folks who play basketball. And in fact, a lot of black folks are really good at basketball and become the stars of basketball. But this time period, uh, basketball is viewed as whites only. And it's something that gets desegregated later on. You actually tend to have a bit more black people in football than basketball. Still not a ton by any stretch. And most college, colleges that have all-white teams would refuse to play them. Still, colleges uh, that have black sports, let me lay that around. Black colleges that have sports are actually doing pretty well. Uh, baseball and football are the most uh, popular. Uh, they do have some traditional rivalries, things like your uh, H uh, HBCUs have it. The Bayou Classic's not around yet. Uh, Bayou Classic doesn't come around until, I think it's in the 60s or 70s where it comes around. But still, um, college athletics become very popular across the board in the 1920s, maybe because radio and uh, newspapers start covering more nationally. Uh, and black colleges are no exception. A lot of people want to start watching. People play basketball, well, baseball and football. Uh, basketball doesn't get super popular until a little bit later. Baseball is the number one sport, honestly. Football is a distant second. Uh, a lot of traditional rivalries, for instance, for the longest time, 
Uh, baseball was played on Easter Monday. That'd be the Monday after Easter. Uh, a lot of black schools would play baseball games against each other. Very big thing. Big crowds, 6,000, 6, 10,000 people, absolutely. So with that said, let's get to the conclusion. Uh, for blacks, it kind of seemed that nothing really changed that much, which is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, last class, we talked about how things were pretty god-awful, and they were. I mean, don't get it twisted. Jim Crow is still around. However, people are moving around in different elements. Lynching is still occurring. Racial violence is still uh, occurring. Things like the Klan have come together. Scientific racism is about. Birth of a Nation gets millions of members, millions more to support it. But in the midst of this, the status quo is being changed by groups like the NAACP and the UNIA. I mean, the NAACP got about 100,000 in the 1920s, disproportionately on the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And not just black people. You have white people as well, the NAACP. And groups like the UNIA really start challenging ideas of pride and self-respect. They're basically saying, hey, we're black, we're cool, we're awesome, we're beautiful. You know, black is beautiful. We should have pride for being black. We shouldn't be thinking of ourselves as like, you know, second best or um, the lesser people. You know, even though a lot of people believe in eugenics and racial hierarchies, that black people are inferior, a black person, you know, they're saying we don't have to believe that. You know, Marcus Garvey, for his faults, and they are many, uh, he, uh, you know, a lot of black folks do agree with the idea, of, a lot of African Americans agree with, hey, we should have some idea of racial pride. Now, to the extent that we should be racially separate, that's where a lot of African Americans don't agree with him. Uh, we should be talking to the Klan about we should go back to Africa. Yeah, that's something that a lot of black folks don't agree with. And this really spills over into the Harlem Renaissance, where people are talking more and getting listened to about what does it mean to be African American. Now, is it problematic? And I really hope you discuss this. Yes, it is interesting that, you know, what's the line between respectable and authentic? You know, if, so, if somebody's trying to put their best foot forward, is it inherently inauthentic? Or is there something to be said for not trying to, um, I don't want to say pander, but reaffirm negative stereotypes? Think about it when we talk about, like, rap music or things like that. Uh, get into that as we talk about that. So... With that, a little bit longer than normal, but I thought it was pretty good. This is Dr. Tully, coming from the recording studio. Hope you have a good one. Later.